0: Radio Boise, in collaboration with the Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories. Readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at the Modern Hotel in downtown Boise.
1: To start here. so My name is Christian Wynn, and um, I help the Modern out with this uh, endeavor we're calling uh, the Campfire Stories Season 2. Everybody here? Okay, yes. Yes, thank you. Um, But it was actually originally Michael's idea here and Polly's idea, and they made it sort of a thing, and they asked me to come on board last year to get the writers and the storytellers in our community and in the Northwest and outside that even. So we are back for a second year, and it's so awesome to see everybody here. Um, Tonight we have Judith Steele. We have Matthew Cameron Clark. We have Dwayne Blackaller. So those three wonderful storytellers performers and writers and all-around good people so Judith will be up first um, but let me make a couple of announcements I would like to I would like to thank of course the modern everybody the modern I <laughs> mean what a great venue and last year actually we started in June it was like 58 degrees and it was kind of a cold night where we could use the campfires but not this year apparently so Um, but the sun will be down on all of you hopefully soon and uh, we will not sweat too much more this evening unless yeah but so anyway Paulie Michael Remy by the way Remy is the guy who runs the, the restaurant the bar the bit in there and they do an amazing job with the craft cocktails with their food and it's kind of a difficult night for them sometimes because they're running around with all of us and people move and whatnot. So if you can do your best to like keep track of your server, tip them well, of course, understand that, you know, they're busy tonight and it's a it's a tough thing to make a good cocktail. So it takes a while sometimes to get your stuff on a busy night, but they do good work. So there's that. And Elizabeth is back there, the owner of The uh, Modern. And we thank you for hosting this and having us on board. So, And Rediscovered Books over here. The owner, Bruce, and his son. What's your son's name? I don't know your son's name. Dennis. Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Good to see you. So, yeah, they're selling books. Um, Tony Doar's new book, which maybe you've heard of, I'm not sure, but I won't even mention the title, so. But it won some sort of prize fairly recently, and so that's for sale, and Al Heathcock's books for sale, there is Judith's books for sale, and actually there's my book for sale too, which is actually nice. So you know, we'd be happy to sign books, Judith especially, would love to at halftime sign, talk to you, whatnot. Um, I see some representatives from the cabin who are here, Brit, And the cabin and Story Fort and all this great stuff. We did the launch party for Story Fort here back just pre-Tree Fort time, and it was fantastic. And Story Fort went fantastically as well. And we'll be back for a lot more of that this next year as well. Um, It's just amazing that in Boise on a Monday night that we can bring, I don't know, many, many people. Facebook told us like 138 or something like that. but. It seems like close to that inside-outside. Um, but that's just, I don't know. It's crazy that people come out, and beautiful. I mean, it's a thing I do. I write, and and, and a believer in story, um, as are the folks who are going to be reading, and as are all of you guys. So I thank you guys for coming out, and uh, Boise in general, for being a great literary community. And let's see. Second Monday of each month, will be here through September. Um, Let's see, who else do we have? We have Matthew R.K. Haynes and Joel Wayne next time around, both fiction writers. Matthew was here last year. He has a new novel that's out. Joel just won a giant prize from the Chattahoochee Review. Um, And so they'll be here a month from now, and we'll give you more announcements about that soon. So I will be mostly quiet, though I will tell you a little bit about Judith. So, Judith Steele lived in Northeast Brazil for a number of years as a Peace Corps volunteer, translator and journalist for Project Hope and a volunteer with Amigos de de las Americas. Several years after after her last stay in Brazil, she began writing Angel. The book opens with a woman shut in a tower and then explores the growing catastrophe that put her there. So that is a setup for what Judith's gonna be reading tonight. She'll be talking about the story writing process, the novel, how it kind of came to be, and what she, I don't know, how her whole process worked, and then she'll be open to a few questions before we have a break, well, about 15 minutes or so, and then Matthew and Dwayne will come up and do their thing, and oh, Radio Boise, I didn't, well, did I not plug Wendy over there, and Radio Boise's here, and they will also be putting these up as podcasts on SoundCloud. So these readings that you hear this summer, and actually last summer's stuff too, um, will be available. And one last thing, I want to talk about uh, Rediscovered Books doing their expansion and their, what are we calling it? Oh, it's the Indiegogo stuff, that's right. So, by the way, you can contribute a bit to their campaign as they begin, I don't know, a whole new chapter in their bookstore's life. They moved downtown a few years ago, and it's been a great entity to have there on 8th Street. And now if you know the Lux space right on Idaho Street, they're ex- knocking out the wall and expanding into that space. So they'll actually have two front doors basically and have a lot more events down there and bring bigger riders in, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can support them, do. And here we go. Judith to
0: Christian said, "I'm going to just talk a, a little bit, read a little bit, and talk a little bit about um, the Angel of Esperanza, how it how it came to be. Um, it it started, as he mentioned, I lived in Brazil for a number of years, on and off, and it um, started as." This book started as a small germ of a story that I carried around in my head for a long, long time and uh, didn't do anything with because I was doing other things, including writing two other novels that we won't talk about. Um, And I was actually in the second working on the second novel and had run into a uh, wall with that novel, just really not getting anywhere with it. So I decided, I had a Brazilian character in that other novel, so I decided I'm going to um, take a break, write this short story that I've been carrying around in my head, and um, then go back to my novel. So here's the way I started. Late at night in the faraway town of Esperanza, a light burns in a lonely tower. A warm wind drifting through the town carries the mournful notes of the woman in the tower. Her voice rises into the wind, rippling the fronds of the coconut trees lining the town square, then drops low insistent the people know who is shut in the tower they never mention a name afraid that to talk about the moans would make them louder the sound invades their sleep men take their hammocks inside and hang them on hooks sunk deep in mud and wattle walls close wooden shutters even when the air is stifling Women stuff their ears with bits ripped from their handkerchiefs, welcome their babies' cries in the night to drown out the dreadful laments. On nights when there is no light in the tower, the townspeople awake refreshed and nervous. Has she run away? Is she dead? The next night, the crying starts up, reassuring the town that all is as before. They will not sleep. Their master will have no rest. He will come to his factory with his hair wild and his suit rumpled. He will stare at them with burning eyes and work them half to death or not at all. All will be exactly as it has been for the last five weeks. Before Elena was shut in the tower, Esperanza lived up to its name, Hope. It is not a beautiful town flung onto the vast plain like a tattered map lying in the gutter. Still, it has its own squat church, hunkered on one side of the square, and Dona Ana's mercantile and bar slung, slung along the other side like the devil's choice. A few of the mud houses lining the flat streets are spread with a prosperous layer of white plaster. Red tile roofs have replaced some of the palm thatch. Women waiting for their morning coffee to boil on kerosene burners can buy fresh sugar buns from a neighbor's backyard oven. Men walking home from a hot day in the cement factory south of town can pay two centavos for a banana popsicle from a refrigerator set on a friend's front porch. Dirt streets start out purposefully from the dusty square but soon meander off into the dry land that stretches from the ocean east of Esperanza to the western jungle that looms green and hungry in people's dreams. The main street gives out north of town at the banks of the sadly misnamed Rio Branco, which flows muddy brown most of the year. In the great rains, when water pours from God's gray metal pitcher, the river churns up out of its banks, traditionally taking along several mud houses with it, always the same houses. The occupants accept their fate, rebuild in a day. They're fishermen, marked by the gouge rings of flesh torn from their legs and hands by the piranhas living in the Rio Branco. The fishermen wait out every day except Sunday praying to all their gods to send them anything but piranhas in their nets. They are the only men not working in Sr. Machado's cement factory. They sell their catfish and soapfish to the maids in his large house, to Dona Ana, to housewives looking for something fresh for the midday meal. Occasionally, they sell their catch to the captains of the two large canoes chugging down river every Friday with their precious cargo of girls dressed in the tidy blue and white uniforms of the Escola de Nosa Senora. Every Monday morning, the same canoes painted with scenes from the Blessed Mother's life pass Esperanza on their way from the capital city to Nosa Senora. The girls, shaded by striped canvas awnings, sit facing each other on long benches built into the boat's curving hulls. They drink cafezinhos laced with creamy milk and brown chunk sugar, eat the glazed buns served on a silver tray by two cabin boys in white waiter jackets. They gaze dreamily at Esperanza and think about the prince who rode away with their Elena. The canoes sway through the water urged on by their pulsing engines The girls ride without concern out of their mother's arms and pretty villas in the dirty capital city to the pristine rooms and courtyards of the school where they learn penmanship, needlework, piano and voice, how to set a tea table, and how to mount a horse. It was from the riverbank that Senor Machado first glimpsed the lovely Elena. As I said, I thought I was writing a short story. And I got about 10 or 12 pages in and thought, uh uh-oh. I don't know what I'm doing here, but this is either going to be the longest short story or it's going to be something that can't be published anywhere. No one will accept this length. But the only thing I knew to do, because I didn't want to stop writing it, was to keep writing and that's what i did um so helena and senior machado roberto married they had a son luis and when luis is six a a tutor is hired uh senior tomas is hired from the capital to come to the small town of esperanza and to live with them um, and to teach uh, Luis, their son. And Helena, besides saying, this is what I'm, how I'm going to have my son educated, also makes another decision. The word went around the factory the next day. Helena was looking for a companion for her boy another boy the same age to play and study with him. Elena would interview the boys herself and choose the one who would stay with her child. He would live in the yellow house with Elena. He would learn everything her son learned, eat the same food, wear the same proper short pants and hard shoes, speak with the same cultured voice as her son. When Luis was sent away to school, his friend would go with him. Everything, of course, would be provided for both boys equally. She chose a child no one knew. His parents lived at the edge of Esperanza, in a mud hut with no white plaster face to give it substance and status. His father was a fisherman, a man who threw his nets with skill and caught as many fish as other men, but never seemed to sell as many. Soon everyone in Esperanza knew which boy had been chosen, but none knew or could understand why. Helena decided on the fisherman's son almost as soon as he walked in. He was smaller than her own son, but had a natural grace that she found surprising in a boy born of a fisherman. As he stood before her, not speaking, and head bowed shyly, she said, look at me, please, in a quiet voice. When he didn't move, she reached over, cupped his chin in her hand, and lifted up his face. For one moment, he looked directly at her with eyes as dark and mature as a man's. Then he looked down, long black lashes hiding his astonishing eyes and she took her hand away from his face. This little boy, although she couldn't say why, showed a determination that tugged at her. She was attracted and fascinated by the flash of force in that one look. She chose him. So now I have gotten to the point where um, when I started off with three main characters. this is I can control this. This will work. I can talk about Elena and Roberto and their son. This is gonna work. No, now I have two more characters moving into the house and they have their own ideas about how things are going to go and what's gonna happen now. <clears throat> the, the story was rapidly taking on a life of its own and I really felt like I was just scrambling to keep up. Um, I kept writing. And I kept writing. And I tried to just write each short chapter until it was as finished as it could be for that moment, hoping each time that when I finished that chapter, I would know how the next one started. and. I knew this is not the way you write novels. It was working, but it wasn't going to continue to work because you don't do it this way. I'd I'd read lots of um, advice and um, memoirs and things like that from other writers who were published novelists, and I knew how they worked. And I had a couple of friends who did this as well. They, They laid out the chapters they knew Had an outline for the whole thing, and I was not doing that. So I kept doubting myself. I kept writing, but I kept doubting myself. And um, then one day I was reading Poets and Writers magazine, thank you, and I um, found an interview with David Long, who's um, a wonderful writer. And and at that time I knew him as a short story writer. He has a lot. collections of short stories, and they're excellent. And he was connected with the University in Missoula, just a a really wonderful person and a very good writer. And you see his short stories to this day in places like The New Yorker. Um, But somehow his agent had convinced him that he was going to write a novel, even though he said he would never do it. And I know what the agent did. dangled a giant check out there and said, now you're going to do this. And so David did. And he wrote an amazing book um, called The Falling Boy. And he has written several more novels now. Um, <clears throat> but in this, in this uh, interview, he talked about the difference between writing a short story and writing a novel. And he said, writing a novel is like walking through the woods at night with a flashlight. You can only see out to the edge of the light, and you just hope it doesn't go out. And I just it was so I was just filled with relief <laughs> that at least one other person was doing what I was doing, which was stumbling through the woods at night, trying to figure out where I was going with this so that that kept me going, and David became my mentor. He doesn't know this, but thank you, David. Um, and then, about the time I got comfortable with that, something else happened, and uh these these things happen. characters do what they're going to do, and they can startle you at times um, and Roberto decided um, Elena was taking painting lessons from Tomas, the tutor, and he decided Roberto decided he wanted Helena to go to the plantation that his family owned, which was deeper into the interior, a sugarcane plantation that his family had had uh, since the time of slavery, and he he wanted her to go there to see portraits um, that he had, that they had in this ancestral home of his, of his ancestors, and to study those because he wants her to paint a painting of him with his two boys, Luis and Jose. So everybody except Roberto, the other four main characters in the house left. They left the house, and now they're going to the plantation, and I'm once again, in a state of total panic, I knew when I was writing about the town of Esperanza, I know those towns. Um, I've, I've lived in little towns like this, this place I made up. And um, I know what, what happens there, how life goes on. I know what the smells are. I know what the sounds of the little boys running down this dirt street, kicking a fuchi ball. Um, uh, soccer ball, half flat, you know, yelling at each other. I know what the water tastes like. I know what the people wear, what they eat. I I know what the air is like there. The plantation, I didn't know. I, I knew there were sugar cane plantations in the northeast of Brazil. That's a part of the history of, of that area. <clears throat> and I had visited one for several days, but I had seen nothing about the operation of how it works or anything like that. So I was scrambling again. And um, I, I like to do research, so that was not a problem, but except there was nothing there was nothing on Brazilian sugarcane plantations. I couldn't find anything. They're online, there was very little. There's probably more now. But I started going to old sources like um, old actual encyclopedias <clears throat> and uh, friend, Peace Corps friends that had, had lived in that area where the plantations were and they didn't know anything either. I could not find, I could find descriptions of plantations, sugarcane plantations in other countries, including in Hawaii. But I knew that you have to get it, you have to get, the details right, or somebody's going to be be reading your book and saying, that's not what they did there. That's not the way it worked. So I was really at a loss to to how to describe this place they were going to. And the setting was very important. I knew that it was going to make a difference to them. So my husband and I were in the only other fabulous bookstore in the Northwest, besides rediscovered books, (laughs) Powell's in Portland, a city block. Um, And he knew where I was, because I'm always in the fiction and poetry. And he was over in the gardening room, which is a different room, and found a book in the gardening room for some reason, came over and told me Is this this anything that might be helpful to you? And I looked at this book. It's called Sugar Plantations in the Formation of Brazilian Society, 1550 to 1835. It's this big. It's the most boring book I have ever, ever read. You do not... I think probably this was somebody's thesis, and he had two extra copies printed, and one of them, you know, somebody ditched at Powell's. And why they put it in the gardening section? <laughs> anyway, but I read the whole thing. It had everything I needed, just as far as how the, how the plantations in Brazil actually worked. Um, so I had, I had my setting, and then I could move my family to that setting. And so the, the four of them, Roberto came out once in a while, but Helena and Tomas and the two boys are staying out there for weeks. At, and um, they, it takes them a while to get out there. And when they get there, they're met by Dona Teresa, who is um, Roberto's cousin. And she's the one who now runs the, the family plantation. The the men are gone. It's way past the time of slavery, but there still are workers there, um, and she's living there with Sibella, who is her young granddaughter. So they go inside. The boys go running off to play with Sibella, who's they both fall in love with immediately. It's a cute little girl, and Tomas and Elena start walking through. The big house with the idea of looking for a portrait for her to start working on long hallways long dark hallways some lined with polished wood cupboards storing linens vases porcelain serving ware from the time of kings silver candelabra black with age wooden mocking sticks leather hats straw hats hammocks Lacquered boxes inlaid with ivory and mother of pearl holding yellowed papers now tattered along folded edges proclaiming ownership of land and men. Narrow Moorish rugs used to wrap heavy chairs and bedsteads shipped over from the ancestral house three centuries before carpeted the hallways. Elena and Tomas followed them to room after room of waxed parquet floors and walls painted mauve and rose and yellow. The walls spoke of hands long forgotten, palms dipped in dyes made of beetle wings and crushed flowers to tint the plaster. Pale palms that ever after carried the stain of the walls as though they were part of the house itself. Down the blackest hall, moving almost by touch alone, Elena found a deeply carved door. She pushed it open. It gave with a groan, as though forgotten, revealing a small room painted fading crimson and smelling of old roses. But it gleamed inside with candles freshly lit, votive offerings in red beaded glass lining a narrow hinged altar pushed against the back wall. The altar, which climbed the wall almost to the smoky ceiling, was the only object in the room. Elena approached it, made the sign of the cross, and saw that the Virgin Mary, despite her holy robes, was sitting on a high shelf in the center panel of the gold leaf triptych. Her legs hung over the edge of the shelf, her feet bare, as though she had come to the altar in exhaustion seeking refuge. In her arms, she held the baby Jesus, but her gaze was directed not at her own child, but downward, to a small painting below her of another perfect baby in a coffin. His eyes, and it was unmistakably a male child, were closed. Each dark eyelash brushed the lower lid like a lost prayer. Helena is drawn into this life of the plantation, uh, its richness, its seasons, the the rainy season comes and goes, all the traditions that go with this this particular place. Um, And she's also drawn into Dona Teresa's loving embrace, which she needs badly. But Helena, at the same time, is haunted by the altar room. Elena woke, bound in damp sheets. She was alone. She was not alone. The drums were with her. This time, she would not resist, would let the hollow vibrations lead her to whatever lay down the narrow hall. Black surrounded her. She did not see. She followed rhythm and something else, voices, pure and high, chanting ancient hymns of sorrow. Elena was pulled along the hallway as the drumming swelled, became wings thrumming in a small space, beating heavy air. Her white nightgown gave off no light. Her small bare feet did not feel carpet. Only her hands responded, fists clenched at her side, knuckles brushing soft plaster, she passed one door frame, two, three, four, all closed stoppered up against the sound she moved by instinct of bone and muscle no thought of crying out moved toward the frantic wings the calling voices and found by memory alone the frame of the deeply carved door she almost fell into the altar room her fingers expecting solid wood touched only air she stumbled once recovered and stood still the drumming was all around her like dark dancers pounding swollen bare soles on the hollow floor. The singing, a high lamentation, came from above. Elena raised her eyes thought she saw a face peering down at her. Some scurrying movement up there, a break in the drumming pattern. Suddenly Elena was afraid. She backed up to the wall, fingers searching for the door frame, felt a hand over her hand a mouth at her ear. Don't startle her. She'll fall. Who? It's Sabella, dear. I can coax her down. Elena pressed her back flat against the wall to stop her trembling. Heard Teresa step away from her. Heard her soothing voice talking to her granddaughter perched high on the altar. Come down, my angel. Come down now. Climb down. That's a good girl. When Teresa carried Sibella into the hall, Elena saw the child was sound asleep. Teresa carried, laid Sibella C- gently in her bed, then led Elena to the kitchen. She poured sweetened milk from a can into a battered kettle, stirred in coffee from the evening meal. I always find her in the altar room, Teresa said. As long as we don't wake her, she never knows a thing about it the next morning. She'll be a little tired, that's all. She handed Elena a large cup of white coffee, poured another for herself, sat at the table beside Elena and looked carefully at her face. You need to sleep now, too. Elena heard the dark wings, felt them pulsing in her veins. What was the drumming? Just Sabella, dear, banging on that poor altar to some rhythm only she can hear. I think sometimes I should take out the altar, give the child a rest, but I worry what the gods would do. And the voices, Elena asked. Teresa looked at Elena, then away. Teresa, you'll have to know the story then. If you heard the music, you'll have to hear the story of Celia. That's where we're going to stop. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Judith. That was awesome.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: I love like a few questions get asked. If you guys want to throw some questions about uh, place, that notion of like having to know perhaps like what you're writing or where you're writing about before you can know what you're writing about. That was really intriguing, that whole bit of research that was just fortuitous <laughs> that it fell into your hands from uh, the garden room at Powell's. But yes. anyway, yeah, you guys can Powell completely class. ask questions for the next like five, eight minutes, and then we'll have a break, and then Matthew and Dwayne will be up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes? So was the plantation in uh, Brazil different than others, maybe? Did you know how they ran the plantation? Oh. Was it different in Brazil? It, there was there were similarities, but there were differences. Um, be, and part of it was the construction of the the um, mill houses and the the grinding wheels and all of that thing was. V- there were things that were very particular to to Brazil. Um, some places that I found they used mules to to do the grinding. They and uh, and here they they used slaves, and um, they had uh, the women were the ones that fed the cane into the into the mills, into the grinding stones, um, and so the one fact that I the one thing that I saw in this entire book that was unbelievable, and I said I have to do something with this. Um, they mentioned an axe on the wall, how there was always an axe on the wall. And it was so that if a woman got her hand caught in, yeah, so that she wouldn't go through it, they, they'd cut off her arm. So there, you know, there were these things that I found that were very particular, and the drawings of how the how that worked, and then the, the drawings, of the what the men did was cook the sugar and um, that's, there's a chapter about that in the in the book as well. Roberto takes the two boys to see that, which is not done at at this plantation anymore. Um, they just ship their sugar cane down downriver now. But it's still sitting there, and he remembers it from when he was a child. So, thank you. That was a good question. Appreciate that. Anything else? Just to to make a mention of what Christian was saying. Um, I was in a writing group when I was when I started this and was bringing in chapters. And um, one of the women in the writing group, another another writer, said to me, and it was when I started in on the plantation, she said, you know, your settings are like another character. That's what you need to think of them as. Um, and that really gave me. Uh, uh, an encouragement and really a, a way to make sure that I described those as well as I could, because they it definitely they affect the characters. The characters change at the plantation. Yes. I, yeah, that was part of what was in the air when I was there. And thank you for asking that. That's a really good question because um, my people would say to me, um, this is an aside, but I remember um, when we heard Karen Russell speaking, um, who wrote Swamplandia, she said people would, would say to her when she was in, in England, I think it was. Um, doing a tour there. How did you come up with these people that wrestle gators and all this stuff? And she, she said, I'm "Not making any of this up. I'm sorry, folks, but this is totally real. And that that's true for the the area that I lived in, the, and actually all of Brazil. The the um, African culture has has affected Brazil very much, and." Um, the, and one of the things they brought with them was their, their religions. And so um, there are people who are very strong Catholics, but they still also observe these uh, and believe in, in these other beliefs as well. And um, the, the little place where I lived in Peace Corps, the first night I was there in my, in my little house, um, wondering what I had done coming to this place there all of a sudden these drums started i started hearing these drums and honestly it was exactly like being in africa and it was a group of people that were gathered there for a for a religious dance and ceremony so it's yeah and and for me it was uh, i say this in the in the uh, dedication to the book it was like coming home for me it was something that i had inst- instinctively Felt in some way that there's there's more mystery in the world than that we can explain with you know this and this and this and so um, it, I was happy to be able to include it. Thank you for asking that. Okay. I think we'll I think we'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Okay, everybody, so the second half of Campfire Stories 2015 is ready to go, so we have uh, Matthew Cameron Clark and Dwayne Blackaller, two of the Bedrock Fellows at the Boise Community Theater. Oh my gosh! I community, Boise Community Radio, Boise Contemporary Community People, no, BCT. Sorry about that. Contemporary. These guys are very contemporary. I mean, look at him. We're right here. I know. Right now. Okay, so they will be spot on tonight. I just, I don't. These guys write together. They perform together. They, I don't know, do something that's quite different. Uh, Judith talked about the whole process of writing a novel and how sort of so many different sources come in and. Uh, Research comes into it. And these guys kind of bounce things off each other. I think it'll be really fascinating for you guys to hear about that. They're gonna perform slash read slash talk about that as well as the three I believe you guys have written together. So you guys are more informed about what you do than I am. So I'll not say too much more, but I want to put a little plug in for a big plug in for the cabin and their summer writing camps. Once again, yes. Um yes, we teach the children how to do this stuff and you know become future modern customers you know on on Monday nights. Um, but no yeah we start with like fourth fifth, sixth graders, seventh, eighth, ninth graders all the way up through high school and we actually offer some adult workshops too so what's that I am teaching one I have several actually so yeah I'm actually... One of the ones I love the best is Urban Inc. that I teach, um, where we go around Boise. We sometimes get down this way to the skate park and whatnot, though these days it could be a little shakier than it was a couple years ago, but we get down to write like about the gritty, sort of like, I don't know, the characters, the, the, the setting, the, the, the smells and sights and sounds of the city um, with seventh, eighth, and ninth graders who, you know this kind of gives them this liberating you know, sort of feeling of actually going into the city in the first place and then writing about it. So, for me, that's one of my very favorites we do. We do the cabin writers, we write, or we teach them how to write short plays, Heidi Cray, right here. Actually, you teach those. So, anyway, it's a really great program. And, you know, tell your friends with children and or your children and or sign your own kids up. And anyway, it's going right now through August. And without further ado, I will be quiet and let these guys do their thing.
2: Thanks, Chris. Hello. Thank you. Uh, And thanks to Judy Steele. Uh, Remarkable. So beautiful. She can string a sentence together, can't she? One of my favorite people in the whole wide world.
3: Okay. So, hi, everybody. I'm Dwayne. I'm Matt. And, And we write plays together these days, and it's a very... We'll talk about that process a little in a little bit, I guess. But um, I, I first want to say thank you very much for being here. It feels very weird. I just drove in from McCall, Idaho, about an hour and a half ago, and I'm going to drive back immediately after this uh, to work in an amazing playwrights festival called Seven Devils Playwrights Festival. If you haven't heard of it, you should. Uh, conference. A conference. Conference. Sorry, playwrights conference. Community. Community conference. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so anyway, come check it out. It's amazing. Uh, we're going to read you a little piece uh, from the first play that we wrote together. Uh, it's called A Nighttime Survival Guide. and um, oh, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This play um, takes place in both Arco, Idaho, the world's first nuclear-powered city, and uh, a little place called Akagawa, Japan, which is in Hokkaido, the northern island of Japan. Uh, in this story, it's, uh, it's about a little boy who's 11 years old named Vern, and uh, a little girl who's uh, also 11 years old, uh, named Aki. And she has just moved to this northern island uh, and is living there very unhappily in this tiny little town. And he's living in his little town. And they both are united by, um, they're both pen pals. From there, it's a school project. And they're united by a shared mystery, which is where are our fathers, right? His father, uh, we learn, eventually is a smoke jumper and is out on a, is out fighting a fire, I guess. And she is, her dad is an engineer, which he misconstrues as a uh, train engineer for a little while. And we learn later on what that actually means. So they're both missing their fathers and living in these tiny little towns and uh, writing each other letters and then eventually making phone calls to one another until their parents get really mad at the phone bill. And, uh, and now they're um, communicating via computer and tablet. Uh, one final note about this is Vern's fear of the dark. Yes, and at this point in the story, they've already
2: faced the first manifestation of their shared fear, mm-hmm. a, a creature called a kappa, um, who they teach, or they, they learn that if you make the kappa bow, the, the power that is in the water in the dish in his head spills out, and you feed him a cucumber and he goes away. These are based on Japanese traditional Japanese folk tales. Uh, which? Coincidentally, that's why a cucumber sushi roll is called a kappa roll.
3: That's true. True story. But we moved on. See now. Judith, we did our research too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now, yeah, we've moved on. So what uh, what we've learned during the story is that Vern's father left him a note saying. Um, be kind to your mother, remember to clean the bathroom, and check under the bed. And uh, he has now believed that his father was warning him about what might be lurking under the bed, and each night he dreads going to sleep, uh, and he's sure that there's something under there waiting for him. And when he begins to see something, Aki, thanks to her knowledge um, of Japanese folklore, begins to describe what he might be seeing, and uh, we're now in the second manifestation.
2: It's 7 o'clock in the morning for Vern, 11 p.m. for Aki, dark in both places. He wakes, shivering in his bed, breathing hard, puts on his glasses, grabs his computer, and calls Aki, who wakes groggily and answers. Music continues to play. Moshi Moshi. Vern? It's 11 o'clock. What are you doing? I had a dream. It's 7 o'clock there. The, The sun will be up soon. You'll be
3: fine. I had a dream. You always have nightmares. I know, but that's the thing, this wasn't a nightmare. It was a dream. Like, a dream about my dad. Oh. Yeah. He was standing in the forest, so tall, like, like a giant among giant trees. There's a roaring all around him, like a dinosaur or a dragon. He's leading his team, giving commands, they're all together, they're digging. His team, they're digging lines and clearing brush, working to starve the monster, working so hard. They're all sweating in their armor, sweating in the heat, but their sweat turns to steam and their breath is like a band of horns blowing as they charge is so loud. The roaring and the horns and the digging and the steam, they shouldn't be able to hear him. They shouldn't be able to know what to do to work together. It's too loud and he isn't shouting it's so loud, but he isn't shouting. Yet they hear him. They understand him. He's singing. He's singing, and it's so clear.
2: Cue Justin Ness singing Rudy Valley's Deep Night in a beautiful tenor voice. <laughs> and he appears as the father in full smoke jumper gear on stage. Aki, are you crying? No. You okay? That's beautiful. Awful. Beautiful.
3: Yeah. I miss him. I miss my dad. Me too. Time passes. The sun rises and sets. Eleven more days until the solstice. Fifteen hours of darkness all in one night. It's coming, Aki, fast. Don't be scared. But I am scared. I can't help it. Something bad's about to happen.
2: Don't get carried away, Vern. A rhythmic thumping of a wooden staff. The lights flicker.
3: Aki, do you hear that? Can you hear that? No, what is it? Something's here. In the house. Vern? In the bathroom. It's in the bathroom! Vern, what is it? What do you
2: see? Shh!
3: Vern! Shh! There is something in my
2: bathroom. I can hear it. It's big. Don't panic. Is it hairy? Is it red? Lights up on an ominous shadow at center, a massive form covered with a shower curtain that steps backwards onto the stage with a powerful rumble. Vern is frozen with fear. Is it hairy? Is it red? Can you see its tongue? We see the arms of the monster. It holds a long wooden staff.
3: Yes, yes, yes! Pop,
2: the lights go out. Aki and Vern are disconnected. Monster sounds in the darkness. Footsteps, whispers, breath. It is turning. Vern scrambles to get his flashlight. He clicks it on and it immediately flickers and dies. The lights flicker to reveal the Akaname facing downstage. Vern stands facing the creature. Hi. The Akanami licks his lips. Vern bows slightly. The Akanami growls and doesn't bow back. Then it unfurls the the full length of its tongue, which extends all the way to a small pile on the floor. It wraps the end of its tongue around the end of his staff and begins to mop the bathroom floor. Vern retreats to the darkness of his bedroom. The Akanami continues to mop and turns upstage in the flickering light until lights out on the monster at center, lights up on Vern and Aki in their rooms, chatting again. What happened?
3: I don't know. The power went out. It was there all night. Aki, a giant monster. It was red and hairy, and its tongue was like...
2: Aah. I know, I know, I know. I talked to my grandfather. I know what it is.
3: I, I tried bowing to it. It didn't even care. Of
2: course it didn't, Vern. It's an akanami a filth liquor. It'll be back. Why? What does it want? We're out of cucumbers. It's a filth liquor, Vern. The akunami, it doesn't care for cucumbers it's only hungry for one thing
3: people
2: no dirty bathrooms the muck and mildew in neglected bathrooms is its favorite treat it can't resist
3: that's disgusting i'm gonna barf
2: it's your bathroom so what do i do what do you do you clean your bathroom
3: of course page one of the nighttime survival guide my dad's note be kind to your mother, clean the bathroom, check under the, clean the bathroom! My dad is so smart! You
2: should have listened, but it's not too late. You've gotta get in there and clean that bathroom or it will keep coming back. Be careful, the saliva of the Akanami is poisonous.: Poisonous? It's okay, just protect yourself. Use the daylight, Vern. It'll be back tonight. That bathroom has to be spotless. Music as Vern walks to center, the silhouettes appear with the tools he needs as he arms himself for battle. Rubber boots, rubber gloves, a hat, a toilet brush slash sword, a spray bottle and swimming goggles with a bandana over his nose and mouth. The narrator says, and for the first time since his father left, Vern cleaned the bathroom. That night, just as Aki had predicted, the hungry monster returned. We see the shadow of the Akanami center Vern scrambles to scrub the last bit of floor, then stands, facing the monster, confident. He clicks the light switch, and the monster is revealed in its comic entirety.
3: Hey, guess who cleaned the bathroom?
2: <laughs> the Okaname picks up his gigantic tongue and leaves, chased by Vern and his spray bottle. Vern triumphantly returns to his room, laughing and shouting, a celebration. Woohoo! <laughs> we paying attention.
3: <laughs> Keep your bathrooms clean, Keep everybody. Keep your
2: bathrooms clean, everybody.
3: That's the Okaname. So, um, uh, from a nighttime survival guide. Thank you. Uh, so, it's interesting. The, um, that story actually uh, was a product of several things. Um, I've been working with a, a guy at BSU, a man named Tom Trusky. I don't know how many of you were lucky enough to know that man, but... <laughs> amazing guy. And I had written a uh, little sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, artist book about um, monsters under your bed, and uh, it had been dusty, and it was a periscope, you know, it was designed so that you could look out of your covers safely, or look under the bed, and it was a book periscope uh, slash survival kit. And hadn't returned to it in a long time, and then um, Matt and I were talking one day, and and we got carried away into this uh, new envisioning of that possibility, and... Uh, I think it's time to talk a little bit about our, uh, the way we write. Because sure. it's, it's a little different than, uh, than writing solo. So uh, we write uh, on computers. Mm-hmm. Right? There are these amazing... Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, no, we, we write on uh, shared Google Docs. So uh, any of you familiar with that technology know that um, when you share a Google Doc with somebody, um, you can see them write uh, in real time. So we go to some public place, usually a coffee shop or, um, or someplace lovely like this, and uh, sit down and uh, both have our computers open. And we talk and we write simultaneously. And so I can see Matt's cursor and he can see mine. And um, sometimes I'll write a sentence and he'll immediately be responding, or we'll switch characters, or we'll talk something out, and then all of a sudden somebody say, wait, 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 and then begin to write. And then we can respond in real time. So it's, a, it's like a conversation that happens. Um, it's a very lucky way to work. Um, and people always ask us, well, what happens when you disagree? What happens? It ha- hasn't happened. Yet. Yeah, we, really? and it's really, we're, we're very lucky in that regard, in that um, uh, so far the ease with which we write together is one of the most joyful experiences I've had. It's great.
2: Yeah! <laughs> we're supposed to be more friction and tension in writing,
3: right. supposed to be angry we save and throw that, we bourbon
2: save that glasses Ferrari. at each other. Okay. Uh, so then, uh, we after uh, Nighttime Survival Guide, we wanted to go in a very different direction, try something different. We wrote um, a play set uh, in, a, in a rustic uh, artist's retreat in the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho, um, a place that would feel like the 1930s or 1940s, but it uh, is set actually in the future. In a, in a time and place where there are people that are automata. They are um, robots. There are people that are created to live in this uh, world. Um, and you don't really know that at the beginning of the play, but you learn pretty quickly um, that uh, Stanley, the caretaker of the longhouse, uh, played by Stitchmarker, um, is an automaton. Uh, and we're going to read uh, a scene. We're going to actually flip roles, because why not? Um, and I'm going to, we're going to read this story um, about this. So this character, Sydney shows up at the Longhouse, having been commissioned to make some new uh, photographs. And Edgar, who's the, uh, in the family that owns the long house, it has sort of fled his family for some unknown reason, and they're both trying to be in this special place in the Sawtooth Mountains by themselves, but they're both there at the same time, and there's a fair amount of tension about that. Um, and they're fighting about, you know, control s- of the space. Right.
3: All sorts of things, including uh, what we'll hear about shortly is that uh, Sydney doesn't trust Stanley the family automaton. Um, She uh, has a thing against created people.
2: There's something wrong with your clicker. What? Your clicker, Stanley. He's a relic. He's slipping. He's fine. He's ancient. You should put him in a museum. Get a new one. Where is he? Something about the culvert. Oh.
3: Which is what? What? The culvert? Yes. It's a pipe, big metal pipe. The creek runs through it under the road. Okay. I didn't know you were a painter. I'm not. What do you mean? Sydney gestures to the painting, now above the door. Edgar sees. He looks at her for a moment, then takes the painting down, recovers it, takes it upstairs to his room. He reemerges without the painting and closes the door firmly. He walks downstairs, looks at Sydney. Don't. Not ever.
2: I was told to make myself at home. You should leave. You should eat. You should leave. Yeah, we've been over that. Truly, you should eat something. You're shaking. He looks at his hands.
3: She takes a bite of the apple, throws it to him. Sit down.
2: I'm going to tell you a story. Edgar doesn't sit. I was at a party. This collector had a ranch upstate, big place. You couldn't see the end of it. Hundreds of acres, they said, just forever. There was a gigantic barn, three times the size of this place, and the, door, the doors were wide open. And through the opening, we could all see the river. It's gorgeous, it wound its way around the field there like a snake. It, it really did look like a snake. It had big looping curves, bending back on themselves so far they almost touched. But the snake's head and the tip of its tail were out of sight, hidden in the dark trees on either side of the. As the sun got low, it was all just like it was waiting. We drank wine and some sort of amazing homemade apple liquor. We watched the sunset and listened to old records. There was no electricity in this place, so the guy had a Victrola with a hand crank and a big horn, you know, the real thing. The sound was so surprising, it it filled the place. Edith Piaf, Kurt Weill. There was no power, but there was music and there were maybe three or four dozen people, and the sky was pink and orange, vivid. And we were dancing. And as it started to get dark, no lights, right? So as it began to get dark, they started lighting candles. Not little tea lights, but not long tapers either. These stout little candles like this, about the size of this. And they were all in clear glass jars. There were so many of them, they kept bringing out more, crates and crates of candles and jars, and as the candles were lit, each jar was placed on the horizontal boards that braced the walls. The framing of the barn made these shallow shelves all the way across the walls, a lot of them, from the floor up to the rafters, rows and rows of these little shelves, just this deep. And they were filling them, completely filling them, with candles in glass jars, every inch. There were hundreds of them. God, there must have been thousands. Thousands of candles lining the walls of this old barn, and you could watch the air move through the space by watching the walls. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't feel it, but you could see it because the candles, the, the flames would flicker and bend in patterns, in, in, in swaths, like starlings, you know? Like, like flocks of starlings, murmurations, starlings, like stars. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Then I turned around. The walls were so mesmerizing. They had me. They were breathing and swirling. They had me wrapped completely for a long time. But then I turned around, and the giant snake in the field, the long, looping river, was alive. The ripples across the surface from the stones just underneath, the texture of the water was catching the light from the candles, and it was the whole river. No matter where I looked, the firelight behind me would follow across the river, and and light from above, too. The sky, there were reflections of the stars in this deep, dark sky, and reflections of these walls of flame. The whole river, stars and starlings and fire. I stood there for a long time, just watching, still dancing a little, I guess. It was so insanely beautiful. And then I looked around to see that everyone else was watching too, eyes wide, a few mouths open. And then I saw the collector, Daniel was his name, and he was watching us, all the guests. He was smiling, proud, you know? And I caught his eye, and he gave me a little nod, and this look, and I realized it was all made. Made? The whole thing. The barn, the candles, the light on the river. It was all part of an installation.
3: It was all fake. Not all of it. The stars and the river. He didn't carve the river.
2: No, I don't know. Maybe. But it was a setup mediated. The way it all worked together? A a manipulation. The whole thing was crafted to feel like an authentic discovery, but it wasn't. It was fake. Like your clicker, Stanley. Made.
3: You take pictures. You choose what to include, what to exclude. You You frame it up. This guy with the barn, he framed the river for you. And until you saw the frame, you fell in love. How are you any different?
2: The pictures aren't the thing. They're artifacts that point to a moment. That's what I'm after, a moment, a real moment, true. I shoot, hoping for a chance at truth, hoping that in the middle, somewhere between the leap and the landing, I can find a single moment of truth and catch it. And do you? No, never but i come close
3: sometimes i'm close you were st- really standing there in standing in a barn looking at the river and it was beautiful but it was bullshit but it really happened
2: it wasn't dangerous the truth is dangerous
3: yes it is there you go all right thank you it's so weird to be speaking other people's roles. It's very weird. I love it. But thought you were really good. Oh, thank you. And you, you were startlingly sexy. Thank you. Uh, which is not the most important quality of that character, but it happens <laughs> to be a good one. Uh, so uh, this next piece is um, inspired... Oh, thank you. How oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, this next piece uh, is later in the play, and um, Stanley... The family caretaker, who happens to be an artificial person, uh, is talking with Sydney, who clearly has shown no interest in him uh, or, or any real kindness during the course of the play at this point. And he's talking to them about, uh, he will talk to them about the brothers, the two brothers who now own the longhouse. house. Um, There's sort of an enigma to her. What Edgar, to whom she has a strong attraction, but she's not sure why. And uh, Oliver, to whom um, he's the reason she's in the Longhouse, he's commissioned the work, and so he's sort of a an enigma too. I'll be reading Stanley, the robot, and uh, Matt will once again reprise the role of Sydney, the photographer. Breakfast is ready. Red flannel hash. So you're a nanny. A caretaker, quite literally taking care of the longhouse, our family, our guests. Huh,
2: it's quite a place. It's quite a family. Yes, it is. Okay, so tell me, Eddie and Ollie, what is it? They're fighting over the dregs of the Derny fortune? Oh, that fight's over. Ollie
3: won. So? Eddie and Ollie are different animals. Different animals on different paths. What does that mean, different animals? Empathy and audacity. There was a night, almost 30 years ago now, we were camping at Ardeth Lake, right in the heart of the wilderness, two days walk from any road. The boys were still young, teenagers, but just. It was twilight and Eddie was fishing, casting a fly onto glassy water. You should see it, Ardith Lake, the reflected ridge of rocky spires. They call it the cathedral and all around soft green turf dotted with wildflowers. So perfect it looks planned. A narrow strip of sandy beach, but not a single mosquito. So the sun had set and the light was waning and the stars, oh, already you could see them tumbling out neck and crop. Have you? What? Seen them? The stars? Not here, not yet. You will. When the sky fades away, you can see the heavens. So in the final moments of light, the last of the last, Eddie was fishing, stretching the day, stealing a few more casts, his line whispering through the dark over and over. Then, plunk, a hollow splash. He'd caught something. A trout? No. It was tangled in the shallows, flopping gently in the water, quivering, and a tiny sound so small the smallest sound, a bat, a little black bat, scarcely bigger than a hummingbird struggling to breathe. So Eddie took off his cap and scooped it out of the water. It was so fragile, drenched and shivering, wet fur, panting. A little mammal, one wing twisted hopelessly by the line, the other, have you seen their little fingers? Grasping. And the hook, it had swallowed the fly midair before being yanked into the frigid water. The hook was set and it was deep. There was blood. So the bat was dying and there was Eddie on his knees, holding it in his hat, speaking so softly I could barely hear, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And there was Ollie crouched at his shoulder, watching, eyes bright. They looked at each other, then Ollie took a rock, a heavy chunk of granite from the ground and offered it to Eddie. There was nothing else to be done, but Eddie couldn't. He just knelt there, crying softly. So Ollie took the cap and set the poor, twitching thing on that perfect, improbable beach on the cold, wet sand. Then he brought the rock down. Hard. Then once more to be sure, and it was over. Different animals. Do you see? It's just that simple, is it? That piece is uh, is uh, b- inspired by an actual experience, of course. I, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that, fly fishing and catching a bat. It's apparently not all that uncommon, though it was startling for me and the guy I was with, very, very startling. And um, startling for the bat. It's unfortunately very startling for the bat. Most of all. <laughs> uh, so that's the Uncanny Valley, um, which of course, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, which of course, the name of course is inspired by the uh, phenomenon of um, the, the feeling that you get, the feeling of revulsion that occurs as something becomes more and more human-looking, as you make something look more and more human, we like it more and more and more until it reaches a certain point, then all of a sudden those feelings turn to revulsion. Uh, The phrase was coined in the 1970s by uh, a Japanese roboticist, Um, and it's now applied to a lot of things, including animation and uh, design in a lot of ways. There's an uncanny valley that uh, when something looks too human but not quite, people get really uneasy. And so it's a, it's a play, in large part, about um, that valley between ourselves and where we find revulsion f- for one another and uh, what does it mean, actually, to be a human being to each other. So anyway, there's that, that piece. This next one is, is, a v- is we equally we went in deep. another very different direction.
2: <laughs> um, and this last fall, uh, wrote a play uh, called Narwhal, Unicorn of the Sea, Uh, that is set in a submarine called the DSV Lugubrious, captained by a man named Barnabas Croc. Um, And uh, our heroine, Diana, uh, Diana Richter, um, (laughs) is uh, in search of the elusive uh, mating ritual of the majestic narwhal.
3: Under the polar ice caps. It's a Uh, rollicking adventure. uh, It's very serious... (laughs) Literary work. (laughs) Lights up. The captain is asleep in his wheelchair. Oxley asleep in a hammock. Diana, above Oxley, also in a hammock. Oxley and Croc are snoring. Uh, I guess I'm Diana. Yeah. Diana is awake, sitting up. November 6th, 2.02 a.m. My first night aboard the deep sea vessel lugubrious. I am surrounded by darkness as we speed through the deep water bound for Greenland. I don't think the whole, in order to overcome your fear, you have to face it head on thing is really working for me. (laughs) My fear of death just seems more justified now, sealed in a creaky, handmade submarine. A sudden groaning sound. What was that? (coughs) Oxley? Are you awake? I heard something. I need to keep my wits about me or I'll be lost at sea just like my grandfather. What am I doing? (sighs) Research, that's what I'm doing. I'm a scientist and the pursuit of new scientific knowledge is my purpose in life. The captain is a bit prickly, but he was quick to agree to the mission. We were underway the moment the horning hollow was mentioned. Why? Who is Barnabas Croc really? And why are the Swedes following us? Do they know Croc? Do they know I'm aboard? They've already ruined my life by taking all my funding with their perfect grant applications. (laughs) Impeccable monsters. Why does Croc hate them? I have so many questions. Wait, who's driving? (laughs) Then, out of the darkness, Diana.
2: Diana. Are you asleep? Oxley, is that you? Mm, it's not Oxley. Captain Croc? No, it's not the captain. Who's there? Who are you?
3: Come see for yourself. She climbs down from her, from her hammock, stepping on Oxley and Croc, who grumble and murmur in their sleep. Oxley? Where are you? I can't see you. That's because I'm not inside. Not inside, then you're- Outside. (laughs) Yes. Outside the submarine. Come and see.
2: This is impossible, this is a
3: nightmare, I must be dreaming. Diana tiptoes to the porthole and looks out into the dark sea. Outside the window is a brilliantly colored mantis shrimp. Can you see me? I can't see anything except endless, deep, dark water and... Odontodactylus scalaris. What? Where? A-, a mantis shrimp. Oh, yes. That's me. But, but that doesn't make any sense. We're thousands of miles from the natural habitat of tropical crustaceans. This water is too deep and far too cold for a mantis shrimp. But tell me about it. I'm freezing. I am losing my mind. I'm seeing things. This is very weird.
2: Yes. Yes, it is.
3: But why are you here? Why are you
2: talking to me? Because, Diana, I am your
3: spirit guide. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you're my what? Your spirit
0: guide. <laughs>
3: Oh, okay, I'm really sorry, but I'm having a hard time understanding spirit you. Spirit guide! Spirit gu- Spirit guide. Oh, you're my spirit
2: guide. <laughs> yes, that's what I said. Spirit guide. Now, let's get down to business. You must listen very carefully. I have come to you in this form to teach you three important lessons.
3: Three important lessons. Yes. Okay, I'll play along. What are they?
2: I'm not going to just tell you.
3: Oh, but you said... You had to
2: learn these lessons for yourself.
3: You said you were going to teach me. It's
2: just how these things work. It's, It's all very mysterious. So... Okay, I'll give you a hint. Are you ready? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Are you listening? Yes. Good, because I'm only going to say this once. <coughs> Everything you need to know, you can learn from Zemantis shrimp.
3: That's it? That's it. Everything I need to know. Everything. But.
2: Gotta go. Bye.
3: Wait. I'll be back. When? When you leave. expect back
2: Lights fade. Um, and so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh.
3: Yep. When we did our research about the mantis shrimp, we discovered that in fact, their mandibles are shaped in a way that um, a lateral lisp is the only actual way that they could speak. So, uh, That's
2: true. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I think we've used up uh, our time, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, we would answer questions if anyone had questions uh, about any of this um, ridiculousness. Um, yes. Uh, Boise Contemporary Theater mm-hmm. um, is where these three plays uh, premiered over the last three seasons. Um, and they, but there are uh, a number of other um, you know, playwrights uh, and groups of people that are working on things. The, we just closed our season with uh, site-specific, no, super secret site-specific something. Heidi Cray is here who worked on that with Tracy Sunderland.
3: That's For anybody right. who and got to experience Jodine that, was Jodine
2: was in it. Anybody who got to see that, it was not like anything else to ever happen in, in Boise, Idaho, or anywhere else, honestly. Um, and we're uh, dark in the summertime, but we'll get started again in the fall uh, with our 20th season uh, at BCT, which is very exciting.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. And Questions,
2: thoughts? Yes.
3: That's a really good question. Do we have any concerns about privacy, or uh, the yeah? The question, the question was, do we have any concerns about privacy using Google Docs, writing in a coffee shop, you know, on uh, other people's uh, Wi-Fi, that sort of thing?
2: Well, you will notice there's been a a, a slew of movies about uh, synthetic humans lately,
3: and they all happened after our play was produced. Yeah, so they've been hanging
2: out at the crux too. Hollywood. Yeah.
3: Uh, I would be honored if someone thought our work was worth stealing. Yeah. So it's honestly not something that we've uh, that we've been too concerned with yet. No, uh, it's good. It's good writing in public is good
2: because there's that touch of potential embarrassment mm-hmm. that el- that creates an editorial layer that might not otherwise be there.
3: It's good, and th- inevitably, Matt and I will be talking very passionately. You know, working our way into the sex scene in the Uncanny Valley was exciting in the public place.
2: And then we wrote it down. <laughs> 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 Any other questions?
1: Uh, question. yeah. yeah. Back to like Judith's, like, episode uh, setting. I mm-hmm. uh-huh. see when you're writing plays, yeah. you don't see dialogue, but I noticed for sure in the Uncanny Valley, especially you had a lot of very, I don't know, setting-oriented
2: runs yeah. dialogue.
1: So how do you manage
2: that? So the question's about setting mm-hmm. and how setting plays a role in writing something the way that it does uh, for Judy's book so uh, beautifully. Um, We're, yeah, we're very specific about setting and and, um, two of the three plays that we've done together uh, are set at least in part in Idaho. The Uncanny Valley is set in the Sawtooth Mountains. Um, And that, we spend a lot of time there. We take these kids over here backpacking in the Sawtooths every uh, summer. And it's a really special, we know, we're, we know and are related to them, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we spent a lot of time there, and it's a, bit, it's like a, it's a special place for us. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to, um, uh, we, in fact, we did a lot of the writing of the play um, while walking those trails up there. And so it's, it's sort of like what Judy was talking about. You spend that time in that place, and you, it's in you in a different way. You don't have to go look up the details of the setting. We know, you know, uh, those views and those trails, um, but then we try to find some circumstance, set of circumstances that we don't know at all and put them in that place and see how they unfold. Um, and it, I think it gives us a layer of, com- of comfort, maybe, of familiarity because you're inventing something else that you and you don't know what it's gonna be until, until you get there. And so, um, Idaho's Ben has played a role, and and then uh, this piece is set, you know, off the coast of Maine and off and Greenland, and it's mostly because I wanted to do a Maine dialect mm-hmm. as the captain. And really. and I was
3: fascinated about what a play in a submarine would look like. But part of the honestly part of the uh, part of the work of of a playwright is to find out um, how is the location applying pressure to the scene in some way, right? It should, it, it, a lot of plays are about whose turf is it and um, who has the advantage in what situation and how does the setting apply pressure uh, to what's happening in the room. And so the Sawtooths and the submarine and um, the distance between Arco and Akagawa were all things that uh, w- came to pl- into play, I think. Yeah, That's a good, good question, thank you. Yeah.
1: right
3: write it and say someone else's problem to the uh to some degree i mean that's one of the advantages we have as as playwrights is that we get to invent something and then the job's not done right it's we hand it over to other artists who then envision it one more time uh, and that's a, and we have we're very lucky to work with incredible designers and artists of, in their own right who help bring that stuff to life but th- you know we qu- we work on things like you know, these mountain this mountain range was playing a very important role in our show, and you can't show the sawtooths on stage in any way that is really um, satisfying. And so, of course, we made the windows they look out to see the sawtooths on the audience side, right? And so um, a lot of times, you know, so we rely on the actors then to see them and uh, to sort of use them. To imagine them for us as the audience, and that, and that's an advantage that we have is that uh, honestly, for me, thank goodness, because I'm, I'm not as good a writer as Judy, and and Matt's almost, but not quite. Um, <laughs> but
2: almost, almost, but not quite as good as
3: Dwayne. <laughs> right, right, right. We'll, we'll discuss about that. Uh, but no, but the the result is that you know we rely a lot on the audience's imagination to do um, some of the poetry that we can't tackle. Mm-hmm. And then we, then there is also the challenge that
2: comes with it. Uh, an intentional challenge to the designers and the technicians working on the show. So with, uh, with the Lugubrious, the submarine um, in Narwhal, we, we had a very detailed vision of it. And, and we worked with Bill Carmen to create the world of the play, to create the submarine, right? So he, he did these amazingly detailed illustrations and paintings of the this sort of Rube Goldberg craziness inside this submarine. But he, he's not a scenic designer, he's an artist. Uh, and just did these paintings and handed them over to Will Ledbetter, who was the technical director for the show, who then had, there are no measurements, nothing's to scale, you just have to then figure it out. And it, it was remarkable what they were able to do. Um, Will and his team and Bernie, Cocky, our props master, and finding all of these crazy pieces to put on stage. Because the the idea is that the submarine is designed to look like a narwhal. It um, has a
3: retractable horn to disguise itself um, when it swims amongst the right? narwhals. And it's
2: an easy thing to do with pen and ink—not an easy thing, but it's a—it's a lot easier to do with pen and ink than it is uh, bending steel and you know welding together parts that are going to hold up to actors running into them when they're not supposed to. I was driving an electric wheelchair through the whole show, and so it had to be built in a way that uh, you know was stable um, but it's also immensely ornate so uh, they are remarkable we're it's a collaborative thing for sure the theater and so it's not done until it it's alive in the theater and and the audience is there to experience it after the work of many 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 people past the playwrights Um, which is great because they make us look really good Yeah, what's next at BCT? Um, Season number 20 uh, starts, uh, we'll start rehearsals uh, in September and open in October for a play called A Skull in Connemara by Martin McDonough, fantastic Irish-English, now American playwright. Uh, we did a play uh, of his called The Cripple of Inishman in our first season on Fulton Street. And um, and another play uh, called The Pillow Man a number of years ago, remarkable writer. This is a play about an Irish gravedigger. Yeah, that's him. Um, a play called No More Sad Things by a woman named Hansel Jung who's from Korea, grew up in South Africa went to school at Yale and spent a bunch of time in Hawaii, which is where she sets this play about a girl from Akron, Ohio. Um, so, you know, it's pretty straightforward, standard <laughs> stuff and has music. So there's a singing original. guidebook in it. Yeah, yeah a guidebook, like a, like a travel guidebook is a character in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, Lauren Weedman, who has come to BCT a number of times over the years is coming back to do a, a new sort of cabaret piece. She's going to sing us some songs and tell us some stories for two weeks in, jan- in, in January. Um, a play called constellations um, that ran on broadway this year with uh ruth wilson who's nominated for a tony award and jake gyllenhaal amazing smart 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 beautiful love story about multiverse theory um she is a theoretical physicist and so all things in this love story aren't, aren't just possible but are true uh it's an amazing way to tell a story um And then uh, lastly, a brand new play uh, from Eric Coble, who wrote uh, a play for us called The Velocity of Autumn a few years ago. That's the first play that ever premiered at BCT and then went on to have a run on Broadway. Um, And uh, another play uh, called Graphic Depictions, that was a one-woman show that Dwayne directed with Tracy Sunderland a couple of years ago. Phenomenal writer who's writing a play about um, a political strategist during the primary season, which is gonna be happening next spring when this play premieres who's stuck in a snowstorm in the Boise airport. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, he has it written by hand and I have it, but he's now t- typing it up to send to me and I cannot wait to get my hands on this new play. It's very exciting. Um, so, uh, some very different kinds of stories coming up. Thanks for asking. Oh,
3: and one more thing. Um, for those of you who have, uh, you know, this is where we do our own plug for uh, students. Uh, we've got a program called Theater Lab. Um, uh, we have a graduate of Theater Lab right here, who's uh, Lily Asuda, who's actually, um, Yay. who is now uh, gone on to work on uh, screenwriting and is an amazing, an amazing young writer. Uh, but uh, Theater Lab is um, an opportunity for kids age 12 to 18 to um, get into a room and do what Matt and I do. Uh, they create a brand new play from scratch twice a year. There are two groups, uh, twice a year, and we're adding a third session um, each time around. This time, it's going to be a little more rock and roll cabaret um, touring style. But uh, So, we're going to be making new plays with young people, too. Check that out. If you haven't had a chance, it's great. It's really amazing work.
2: Thanks so much for listening to us. Thanks again uh, to Judy, Judy. and to Chris, and to The Modern, and um, what a... Great way to spend a June evening, huh? Yeah. Thanks a lot for Thanks being here. Thanks for being here.
3: Good night.
1: Yeah. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Community. Not
1: community.
2: <laughs> Sorry about that.
1: All right. So, that'll do it. I won't talk much longer, other than to say that on, uh, I believe it's July 13th, we have Matthew R.K. Haynes and we have Joel Wayne. Joel Wayne's in the house. Where is he? Straight out of Pendleton. Where'd he go? Well, he was here. He'll be reading fiction next week or next month, and so will Matthew R.K. Haynes, and we'll be here on the patio, and it may be even hotter next, next time around, but let's hope not. So anyway, thanks so much for showing up, everybody, and as I've said before, Remy and everybody in the back of the house, tell the kitchen guys, thanks so much, and take care of those guys. It's not easy to take care of all of us. And yeah, more stories to come.
0: This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening.